APU. American Public University is proud to present the following podcast. Welcome to today's audio podcast here at American Public University System, here in the School of Arts and Humanities. My name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today in Conversations with Faculty, we're going to talk to Lynn Martin. So welcome, Lynn. Nice to be here. Thank you. Excellent. And so today we're going to talk about truth, lies, and fake news. So Lynn is a philosophy faculty here at APUS. And so I'll lead right into the first question, Lynn, of what is fake news? Well, I'll start by defining the term. Fake news is fabricated disinformation that's deliberately promoted on news outlets and social media in order to deceive the public for ideological or financial gain or sometimes both. And it needs to be said that when somebody calls all legitimate criticism against themselves fake news, that itself is fake news. So fake news is a form of lying. A lie is a deliberate misrepresentation of reality. A lie is basically an exercise of power. It's the assumption that the liar's reasons to misrepresent are more important than the recipients need to know. So the lie gets between you and the truth by the use of force. What's interesting about this form of lying is that it's just so captivating. There was an analysis by Silverman and others about news articles that led up to the 2016 presidential election on Facebook. And it turned out that the top performing news articles were the fake news rather than the real news. So that should be alarming. (laughs) It really implies that more people believe fake news than real news. Now, here's a question. Has there always been fake news? Yes. It's just that there's been a shift in our culture and we're seeing a lot more acceptance of lying and fake news than ever before. And I say there's a shift because it's reflected in our language. Language is dynamic. And when you see a shift in words, it usually indicates a shift in the culture. So it's really significant that the word fake news is in the dictionary now. And not only that, but the word post-truth is also in the dictionary. In fact, the Oxford English Dictionary chose post-truth as its word of the year. So that means that it was the most used word in the English language for that whole year. Post-truth has to do with the way the culture is today. And I want to read you a definition from the Oxford English Dictionary. Post-truth means relating to or denoting circumstances in which the objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. So in other words, the belief in what you feel to be true rather than what the facts support turns out to be what most people are uh, going with these days. Those are excellent comments, Lynn. And so the next question I have is, why is it important that we become better consumers of information? Well, because we're living in an age of information anarchy, there are things like alternative facts, which really means lies, and anti-science attitudes, an increasing disregard for evidence-based knowledge. We find that lying is commonplace and stigma-free, and that's why it's more important than ever to have skills to discern the truth from uh, falsity. Because, you know, if the facts don't matter anymore, when they're direct refutations of reality and politics are untroubled by evidence, we can no longer assume that truth is our default setting. 
the emotional valence of words associated with deception has declined. And what concerns me is the widespread acceptance of the fact that lies can be told with impunity. So why is it important? For one reason, it undermines our democracy. Democracy runs on an informed citizenry. So citizens need to be informed. So we need access to the real news, to objective, unbiased, unslanted journalism. To preserve objectivity, journalists use a consistent method of testing information to guard against bias. According to Kovach and Rosenstiel from the Committee of Concerned Journalists, journalism is like our modern cartography. Cartography is map making. So journalism creates a map for citizens to navigate society. And if that map isn't complete or in proportion when the significant isn't given greater visibility than the trivial, then we citizens aren't informed. And since informed citizenry is the bedrock of democracy, that puts our democracy in jeopardy. So what we need are two things. We need access to real objective news, and we need a way to guard ourselves against fake news, a way to be able to discern and not listen to fake news. I love the topography reference, kind of a roadmap for information. Should we rely on certain websites like Snoops and Media Bias and fact-checking websites out there to help lead us? Or is there something else that could help the average person be better consumers of information? Oh, absolutely. In fact, that's really going to be what I'm going to lead up to. We can be better consumers by being better critical thinkers. And also our choices of news media are very important. There are news outlets that have a reputation for being objective. And there are those with a reputation for being very, very slanted one way or the other. So we have to be careful to stick with news sources that we can trust. And there are definitely charts of various different news broadcasts and newspapers and other things that uh, you can look at to get a sense of what's left-leaning or right-leaning. News should not be leaning in any direction. If it's objective, it's just the facts, (laughs) ma'am. Just like that old Dragnet show, just the facts, ma'am. And that leaves it to us to decide what to do with that information. We don't need somebody to tell us what to think. Just give us the information. The big question is, why do we fall for fake news in the first place? And how do we stop falling for it? One of the things that can go wrong is that we get cyber hacked if we fall for it. On December 29th, 2016, the FBI and Homeland Security released a joint analysis report detailing Russian malicious cyber attack in the US and of the various tools and infrastructure that they used to compromise the presidential election was fake news. But their attack was two-pronged. The first prong was to sow doubt concerning the real news. So if you take a poll of citizens today, a lot of people are suspicious of all the news, like journalism has been villainized, and that's not good. The second part of the prong was to elicit acceptance of the fake news. So the disinformation that they spread on social media targeted both Democrats and Republicans. And the aim, apparently, was to incite internal conflict, which certainly worked. Of the tens of thousands of pieces of propaganda that the FBI and Homeland Security discovered, a vast amount of it was believed. So 
To answer the question, who falls for it, I want to refer to a new study out of Yale University that attempted to answer the question. They put together a psychological profile of the kind of person who might fall for fake news. So they had a statistically significant number of subjects, over 1,600, and first they gave them a cognitive reflection test. And this test would be the judge of how well they could think analytically or critically think. And then they gave them a battery of hundreds of samples of real and fake news and asked them to make a judgment if they thought it was true or false. So to get right to the point of the study, regardless of age, sex, education, or political valence, there was a consistent negative correlation between analytic thinking and perceived accuracy of the news. In other words, critically thinking is by far the best preventative medicine to inoculate ourselves against epistemically suspect beliefs. So the propensity to think critically is really what we need to focus on. There are a lot of other factors that influenced our susceptibility to fake news, but that came out far on top. So why do we fall for it? And like some comments about emotions and fears that are like non-related to critical thinking? Yes, all those things factor in, but by far the biggest factor was being able to think critically because it turns out that when you throw in all those factors, the people who scored highly on that cognitive reflection test were the ones who could override their own biases and override their own emotions. Whereas the people who scored low couldn't, they got sucked into anything. So if their political party told them something, they were much more likely to believe it regardless. They wouldn't analyze it for themselves or you know, whatever their echo chamber was, they were far more likely to accept it if they scored low on this test. So scoring high on the test really overcame all the other factors. And so here's a question. If somebody is reading HuffPost or if somebody's reading Fox News, do you think some of those readers are more likely to take that information as the truth because they choose those outlets? Right. There is literature to back up the idea that people feel a loyalty to their group, whatever that group might be. And if Fox News on my chart here is way to the right and not only biased, but often delivers disinformation, if that's correct, and people who would score low on this cognitive reflection test were to watch that show, they would be more likely to have a loyalty to whatever was said because it came from that show. Whereas somebody with critical thinking abilities might watch the show and weigh and balance the evidence for themselves. So yeah, sometimes when people are loyal to a particular source of news, that's all that matters. And part of the reason is we're cognitively lazy. It takes effort. <laughs> it takes effort to think something through for yourself. And it's easier just to be spoon-fed information and just believe what you're told. Here's a question. Talk about Fox News. Fox is always interesting to talk about. An outlet like Fox has shows like Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, and those are more of like opinion shows than actual news. And so why do you think people will watch those opinion shows and take it as news versus actually watching the actual news segments? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's this phenomenon we're seeing in this culture of people just want to believe what feels good to them rather than what the facts will support. 
there's something new about what's happening in people's minds lately. And it's a phenomena that philosophy is trying to study because it really does seem to be something new. Yeah. And when I think of Fox and I think of Glenn, Glenn Beck, is Glenn Beck? <laughs> I think that's the commentator many years ago who was on Fox and had all these interesting ideas and conspiracy theories. And very recently reflected on what he had done. And I guess had a little bit of like, wow, should I have done that? And I think that's a very interesting ability to critically think, especially for somebody like that years later about, wow, should I have actually presented that information that way? To me, that really shows real critical thinking and reflection. Yes, that's very helpful. That should be an ongoing process with everybody to continually make improvements and correct whatever happened in the past. If you um, get more information, you should change your mind if the information is relevant. If you had a belief in the past that is no longer true, if there's any way to correct it, and if you've said it <laughs> to millions of people, that's a little bit harder to do. But the process of critically thinking through that is really important. It's how we mature. It's how we grow as people. From my own experience, I can think of a time when I've read philosophy books and to go straight towards the hot button issues, reading articles about abortion or reading articles about animal testing. Reading philosophy texts really stretches your mind to think, wow, are my original concepts or positions on these topics just from an emotional point of view versus if I actually critically think about them? I could actually have to change my opinion. Did you find that happens for your students when they really start developing their critical thinking skills? Well, emotion can inform your decisions, but it shouldn't be what at the end of the day helps you make the judgment. You should not jump to conclusions, but rather suspend judgment until all the relevant facts are in. Once you have all the relevant pieces of information, you can put that together and make an informed judgment and from that make a good decision. But most people just jump right in with a knee-jerk reaction. And it's normal when you first hear a claim to have an immediate response to it, kind of an immediate opinion. But to learn to think critically means to put that on the back burner, suspend judgment, and then gather some facts. Like just pretend you don't have an opinion until you figure it out, get enough facts together to make a judgment. So that is one of the five particular things that I wanted to say that we should do to be better critical thinkers. We should learn how to suspend judgment. And why do you think people have such a hard time suspending that judgment? It seems like today, I don't know if it's always been that way, but outrage. People love to be mad and to have that outrage about whatever they happen to see on Twitter. <laughs> and so why do you think it's so difficult for people to suspend that and to then critically think? think about whatever they're consuming? Well, I think there's several things, but one of them is confirmation bias. We're all susceptible to this kind of bias. If we hear a piece of news that confirms what we already believe, we're going to want to accept that a lot more readily than a piece of information that disconfirms it. So we have to factor that into our decision-making. We have to realize that we are going to be biased. So you have to be suspicious of every piece of information that you go, oh yeah, I want that to be true because either I have a vested interest in that being true or it supports all of my other beliefs. Because if it's true, 
and it, it sheds a bad light on the things you believe, then you have to go back and re-examine your other beliefs. That takes a lot of work. It's cognitively expensive. And nobody likes saying that they were wrong about something they believed in the past. So confirmation bias is a big thing. And the Yale study tested for one thing called motivated reasoning. And it turns out that those hot button emotional triggers will definitely pull people into fake news, into believing fake news. And it turns out that you can actually rate people. And they tested them by throwing out some really hot button issue to see how quickly they'll react. If we have time, I have a short example of that. Oh, for sure. Go for it. Before the 2016 election, I tried to start conversations with people about what they thought about this part of somebody's platform or something else. And I was walking into Starbucks ready to have a conversation and there were a bunch of people all talking. And all of a sudden I heard somebody throw out a hot button issue. Somebody said the words, Hillary's emails. And all of a sudden, everybody around started cackling like a bunch of birds, like Hillary's emails. And it was just everybody screaming and getting emotional and mad. And absolutely nothing was exchanged in the way of knowledge. It was an emotion fest. And it was just a single phrase that got everybody mad at each other. And that happens on the internet all the time. And that leads nowhere. Nobody learns anything that way. So part of what it means to be a good analytic reasoner is to teach yourself not to react to specific words. Well, any more than like if you walked into a bar and somebody says your mother wears army boots, are you going to fly into a rage and start a fight? That would be ridiculous. And yet some people can be triggered very quickly. And if you're easily triggered, then you're not a good critical thinker. And that's a great statement. Go back to self-reflection. We have to be able to self-reflect on ourselves and how we respond to things. And so if you are somebody that is easily triggered, say you believe in a certain topic or position very strongly, how would you suggest that they work on their critical thinking and to not be triggered as easily? Well, I have five recommendations to help with that. And I think it's a process of retraining yourself to look at things reasonably instead of emotionally. Again, emotion isn't something just to throw away as if it's irrelevant. It's not. But decision-making is a process. And coming to good judgments is a process, beginning with suspending judgment. So it's not just judgment about information. It's suspending emotions as well. You have to be able to put all that on the back burner temporarily until you understand what's being said. You can teach yourself to ask the question, how do you know? That's an epistemological question. That's a subfield or sub-branch of philosophy. And it's about knowledge and truth. And anybody who offers an opinion without any justification should not be listened to. All claims need justification. So... There have to be reasons, evidence, some kind of backup for why you have an opinion. Now, if you're just responding emotionally, you're not asking the question, well, how do you know? Sometimes you can't talk to a troll. If they're just pushing your emotional buttons, you really shouldn't be engaging with them in the first place. But all claims need justification. A lot of times my students feel that everything has to be justified by the scientific method 
or mathematics. And that's not true. Only empirical things need to be justified by the scientific method. But you can't judge, for instance, if the Mona Lisa is a good piece of art or if a painting is really worth $60 million by the scientific method and you can't do it mathematically. There's a whole other method that the art world uses. Same with religion. There has to be justification for a belief. In the case of religion, it's faith. But whatever the claim is, whatever the belief, there has to be some kind of justification. And what you're not getting in those emotional issues, uh, those emotional tirades on the internet, is any kind of justification. And that's a clue to back away and not be a part of it. You can also ask yourself the question, did this information, whatever was being claimed, originate in my own echo chamber? Because we tend to surround ourselves by people who think the way we do and feel the way we do. So it's like our own voices bouncing off the walls. To be a good critical thinker, you need to go outside of your echo chamber and listen to the arguments from the opposing points of view. If you don't understand what the other point of view is, then you have no right to insist that you know what you're talking about. If you're going to say that they're wrong, you have to understand their argument in the first place. So it really pays to be open-minded and seek out information, seek out how other people come to their conclusions. If they have a good argument, it might change the way you think. And if you can have a real back and forth argument, then maybe you'll change the way they think. But in the end, you both win because you both know more. You can also ask yourself, is it to your advantage or disadvantage to believe this piece of information? Because we're all pulled. We all want to believe a piece of information that supports us, that is to our advantage. And uh, we don't want to believe the information that's to our disadvantage. Also, you can ask yourself if you're in need of resolving some cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is that psychological unease you have when you're trying to hold a contradiction in your mind. So if you hear information that's X and not X, two opposite things, it's not comfortable. And you're not comfortable until you resolve it one way or another. But most importantly, it's not the psychological discomfort that's the problem. It's the anatomy and physiology of your brain, because your brain will not stand for that. It'll do whatever it takes to solve the cognitive dissonance, to make sense out of the information that you're getting. Again, I've got an example if you want to know what cognitive dissonance is. Sure, of course. Okay. So it doesn't matter what kind of information it is. It can be social, political, or sensory. So... I had this happen to me, and it was quite surprising. I was wearing a pair of yellow aviator sunglasses, and one of the lenses popped out. So my field of view was half bright yellow and half clear. Now, the information going to my brain was the visual data, which said, oh, half the world is bright yellow and half the world is clear. And the other piece of information that my brain held was that the world is not that way. So that's a contradiction. So without my permission, <laughs> my brain just decided to make sense out of that inconsistency and came up with an algorithm to average all the visual data. So all of a sudden, my entire field of vision went pale yellow, <laughs> exactly the midpoint between the bright yellow lens and the clear lens. 
And I took my glasses off, put them back on again. But still, instead of the world being half yellow and half clear, everything I saw was pale yellow because that's what my brain did with all the incoming visual data. So what I was seeing was not reality, but it certainly looked that way to me. Now, if you can take that as an analogy for all the information we get, it's quite possible that we're making decisions and making judgments based on our sense of reality when, in fact, our brains could be doing something to resolve a conflict, an inconsistency, and we're not even aware of it. So that's a huge thing that most people don't take into account in their judgments. And you can factor that in. Realize that if you had a conflict, say, conflicting information in politics, that maybe you didn't come to the correct conclusion. Maybe your brain just did something to uh, solve that dissonance. And that's a great example. I absolutely love the example of wearing the sunglasses. And today we're talking to Professor Lynn Martin, Truth, Lies, and Fake News, and we're going to take a short break. The public service field offers satisfying ways to make a difference to people and their communities. At American Public University, you'll have the chance to learn great tools and strategies from highly experienced leaders, as well as develop the knowledge to create effective policies. Get the expertise you need to make changes to your community or even the world. Apply now at study at apu.com. We're back with Professor Lynn Martin about truth, lies, and fake news. And so uh, what are some of your closing thoughts today, Lynn? Well, I think it's obvious that another thing we need to do is always check the source of our information. It's important to trust reliable authoritative sources that have a reputation for objectivity and to not trust unreliable sources with a reputation for bias. Of course, fact-checking and validity checking are important. In that case, we really have to fight our own mental laziness to do a little bit of extra work to make sure we have all the facts, but we don't have to do it all ourselves. There are a lot of fact checkers out there who are ready to jump on anything any politician says. So we can go to uh, people who are more expert to fact check for us. But it's important to realize that just because something is true doesn't mean it isn't a lie. (laughs) I know that sounds weird, but the thing is, you can tell a half-truth and it can lead everybody to infer a conclusion that would be just the opposite if you told the whole story. So simply being true might not be enough to make a good judgment. And those are some of the ways that I think we can be better consumers of information. Excellent. I love what you said about half-truths. I think we unfortunately see that all the time in media where a media outlet will tell the truth, but it's a half-truth, and then spin it for their own purposes? Well, I have an example. During the election debates in 2016, I had my students watch the debates, and we had just done a lesson on logical fallacies. And I asked them to write down any fallacies that they observed. But one thing came up, and I don't remember the actual numbers, but basically, everybody caught this, that Trump said that immigrants cost the U.S. X number of dollars. It was in the billions. And that's all he said. And all the fact checkers were saying, yes, that's true. Absolutely true. And it is true. (laughs) The problem is that immigrants pay in with taxes and Social Security and all kinds of other ways far more 
than what costs our economy. So really the conclusion is that immigrants help our economy, but because he just stopped with, this is what immigrants cost our country, it was only reasonable to infer that, oh my gosh, immigration is bad for our economy. And actually the opposite turned out to be true. And that's a excellent example because I think in every political season, which we're coming up to one, yay, <laughs> uh, we will see that. If you listen to this podcast today or in 10 years, we will see half-truths thrown around all the time. And it's so important for all of us to be better consumers of information. Definitely. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, we had a great conversation today, Lynn. And today we talked to Professor Lynn Martin. She's a philosophy professor here at American Public University System. And today we talked about truth, lies, and fake news. It's been a great time. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, Bishar. Excellent. And um, everybody have a good day. For more information about our university, visit us at study at APU.com. APU. American Public University.